Hi, Calvin. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Uh, how about you, Sam? Good. Good to be back on the fly. Um, I apologize if my voice is a little bit raspy. Uh, last night, I just got back from the Bruce Springsteen concert at Capital One Arena. So it was, it was... <laughs> a nice humble brag, Sam. How was it like? It was great. It was beautiful. It was my second time seeing him. I saw him, uh, I guess, seven years ago when I was 15 in Seattle. And one of the things that jumped out to me about this concert is that um, I mean, he's been touring forever and it really did feel like he was saying goodbye to a lot of um, a lot of his fans on this one. Um, and like, it, you know, it sort of got me thinking as we were preparing for this concert about, um, you know, how you look back on on journeys that both have have well and, and well intentions and and difficult uh, bumps around the road. Uh, I also saw in the news today how Congress is considering um, uh, ending our use of authorization of use of military force in Iraq. And obviously, a couple of years ago, um, we had pulled out of Afghanistan, um, and it really makes you think about, you know, the, the the decades and shift in American foreign policy and, and attitudes toward it. And so that's that's what I was thinking about with regards to this this podcast and the concert last night. Yeah, and speaking about, uh, and the perfect person to speak to about these issues is uh, former Representative Elaine Luria. Uh, after going to the U.S. Naval Academy and studying her, uh, getting her B.S. in Physics and History, uh, she proceeded to serve a 20-year naval career. And then from 2019 to 2023, she was representative for Virginia's 2nd Congressional District, uh, where she served as a uh, where she served as vice chair of House Armed Services and on the House Committee for Homeland Security, VA, and the Select Committee for the January 6th attack. So uh, I'm glad you were thinking about that. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed our conversation with Representative Loria. Uh, particularly, I felt like it put in perspective the huge and huge task of building up our defense and security capabilities, particularly uh, our naval capabilities. Um, and also the, the, the bipartisan work that goes into that, um, not only the scale of that, but also the, the requisite long-term planning that it takes and how sometimes our politics makes that difficult to achieve. So definitely uh, enjoyed our conversation and I think it's worth a listen. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll dive on in right now. Representative Laurie, thank you so much for joining us here um, at Find the Wall. We're so excited to have you on the podcast and to have you as a uh, spring fellow here with us at Geopolitics. Well, happy to be here on the podcast, and I've been enjoying my time at Georgetown. Yeah, uh, again, it's great to have you. Let's go right into our lightning round. Sure, let's do it. Um. What I think is great is that uh, we are looking into your background, and you are also a fellow history major in college. So uh, our first question for you is, what's the favorite your favorite course you took in college, and uh, how do you think that's affected you today? Um, well, as you might know, I went to the Naval Academy, and um, I really enjoyed my freshman plebe year. Um, the Naval History course, I think it kind of framed um, you know, the importance of the Navy um, throughout the course of American and, and, and world history. Um, and it's really sort of something that's come back during my time in Congress. We talk a lot about Alfred, Alfred Thayer Mahan, 
um, the importance of sea power and history and, you know, kind of right back there um, in the geopolitical circumstances today, um, talking about how important the Navy is with regards to, to China and, you know, U.S. presence around the world. So, you know, there's little nuggets, uh, you know, from courses in the past that, you know, are sort of timeless. So, and I really enjoyed the professor um, for that course, who's someone I've stayed in touch with, you know, over the course of my professional career as well. Oh, amazing. I was actually just chatting with um, another Georgetown professor who has stayed in touch with actually a former um, fly guest as well. Uh, and Georgetown alum, Will Haskell, who ended up running for state Senate afterwards. So it's funny how those connections to university continue to, um, to, to pop up later in life. Um, but so speaking of your time at the Navy, um, you, of course, um, were a service worker officer and a nuclear engineer and spent some time at sea commanding um, service members which I think is a pretty unique experience. What, what's the best and worst part of life at sea? Well, um, you're pretty isolated. Um, it's a little different today because, you know, you do have those connections with uh, the internet and, and being able to email and stay in touch, you know, under most circumstances. Um, but when I you know, first came in the Navy, went to my first ship, was a destroyer based out of Japan. Um, and it was the 97, 98, 99 timeframe. It was really pre-internet uh, or email, at least, you know, at sea. Um, it's kind of funny because we could send messages back and forth, but it was done via the system that our supply officer used. And they could only be like 150, 200 characters. And if you got an email back, um, someone would print it out fold it in half, staple it and stick it in a box for you to go pick up. So it was a very archaic system. Um, but, uh, you know, that connectivity has, you know, improved over time. Um, certainly being in the Navy is a way to you know, see the world, um, had the opportunity on you know, six different deployments in the Middle East, the Western Pacific, the Mediterranean, you know, to, to visit a lot of different countries, um, interact with a lot of different navies and, and just, you know, see and understand better um, other parts of the world. Yeah, I always imagine the travel is uh, something that would be the best part, honestly. Uh, it seems very adventurous. Uh, our next question for you relates to your background as the former representative from uh, Virginia's 2nd Congressional District. Uh, and it's what's the best piece of advice you have for a freshman rep in Congress, someone who is in your position? Well, I think it's about communicating. Um, there's just a lot of different, you know, people that you need to uh, be in constant contact with. You know, most importantly, the constituents in your district understand what's on their mind. Um, it's about relationship building with other members of Congress, and then you know, communicating about the work you're doing. So I always talk about there's sort of a feedback loop. You mentioned I was a history major. I was also a physics major. So kind of putting it in sort of technical terms, like a feedback loop. Um, to to make sure that you know the you're hearing from people and that the work you're doing on their behalf and then communicating that back uh, to them through a variety of ways, whether that's you know one on one through correspondence in response to you know, what they've reached out about, um, or in more public venues like town halls, um, you know constantly you know trying to be engaged with the local press about putting out you know the work that we're doing in Congress on behalf of the community. So it's a lot about communicating um, effectively. Amazing, yeah. And um, yeah, that sort of concludes our, our big three lightning round questions that are a, a big picture of you. And one of the reasons that, you know, I was chatting with Kelvin about this earlier, I was particularly excited about this interview is when we at, stack up the background that makes you, you know, a background in history and physics from an educational standpoint, experience in the military, and then representing um, 
uh, a district with a lot of uh, ties to military production and and service members. Um, you seem like one of the 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 top people to speak to about um, defense security and and foreign policy uh, considerations in for the United States, which I feel like has undergone a particular shift at least um, in our lifetime. When we think about you know what America was looking at in the early 2000s versus now in terms of defense, security, and military involvement. Um, uh, particularly, you know, we obviously just exited um, the, the, our involvement in Afghanistan not too long ago. And I saw, um, you know, recently Congress was considering ending the authorization of use of military force in Iraq. Um, and it just, it seems to me like there's a lot of push and pull between desire to have a presence on the global stage and, um, and ensure security uh, um, objectives are being met there, but then also a hesitancy, particularly among uh, new members of Congress, to be involved in foreign affairs and in security situations abroad. I was just wondering if you had any reflections either on those specific issues in Iraq and Afghanistan or broadly about that change we've undergone in the past two or three decades or so. Sure. So, you know, certainly the time period you're describing, if you're talking sort of about like your lifetime, um, you know, we were involved in you know, confronting terrorists and non-state actors, um, you know, around the world. A lot of our activities were obviously on the ground. Um, and, you know, from a Navy perspective, the Navy was supporting ground forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, which I've talked a lot about how that, you know, has put us in the situation we're in today, essentially, um, with you know the majority of our focus, the majority of our investments going towards supporting those ground wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and underinvesting in the Navy, the Navy's capabilities, and then you know we've seen a dramatic and steep rise um, in China's capabilities and the number of, of forces, um, especially you know ships, aircraft, advanced missile systems, you know other types of capabilities. Um, and so we really have a lot of investments that we need to do today um, to make sure that we are, you know, the, the military force that we need to be um, in order to ensure a free and open Indo-Pacific, which, you know, that's kind of one of the tenets of, of where we are in China's threat. It's not only about, you know, their potential aggression towards Taiwan, which, you know, military commanders have said it could potentially happen in the next, um, you know, five to seven years. Um, so we have to be ready with what we have today because it takes a long time to build these capabilities to build ships. Um, and we really need to build alliances, um, you know, strengthen those with our allies across the region, which you've seen, you know, additional access for basing in the Philippines, um, some very forward leaning statements by the Japanese um, about, you know, how they view a threat to Taiwan as a threat to themselves. Um, and, you know, building uh, those alliances, AUKUS, the you know, submarine deal between the United States, UK and Australia. Um, to ensure that Australia has the capability um, in the next decade um, for nuclear-powered submarines, um, and the Quad, um, which is really uh, an informal alliance, but between India, Australia, Japan, and the United States, and leveraging that um, for defense across the region. So, you know, really, we had a focus, um, you know, fighting terrorism. A lot of our forces were deployed, you know, routinely to the Middle East, but there was always presence in the Indo-Pacific. We've always um, you know, had at least one carrier, um, and th th those uh, forces will, in the um, Western Pacific, we have forces based in Japan, the carrier strike group and amphibious ready group, you know, we have other um, forces across the region, but, you know, the focus towards the Indo-Pacific, all that at the same time um, that we've seen Russia's unprovoked aggression against Ukraine, um, and the strain that that, you know, has put 
um, obviously on the Ukrainians who are under continuous assault, um, but our NATO allies who border um, Ukraine um, and you know working with them to provide Ukraine the resources that they need um, to push out the Russian invasion. Um, but also to shore up our support for our, our NATO allies and you know, calling on them as well uh, to sort of step up their game um, and do more towards the mutual defense that we've, um, you know, and, and relative peace within Europe that we've appreciated since World War II um, because of the NATO alliance. Yeah, thank you for that answer. Uh, it was very complex and like multi-layered. I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about that because in your lightning round answer, you mentioned how communication is one of the most important parts of a representative job, but uh, your colleagues don't necessarily have the same expertise in uh, security and defense that you do. You also mentioned that that's part really, you also mentioned that's probably why uh, there's an underinvestment in uh, the security interests as well. So how do you communicate these security interests uh, to your colleagues and uh, possibly the administration as well? Well, I think it's really important um, to put it all in perspective. You know, I did an interview on 60 Minutes um, about a week ago. And one of the things I said that I was really glad, you know, was included in the interview that if we don't get this right with regards to China, um, our investments in defense, our alliances in the region, our ability to push back against, you know, China's, um, you know, uh, territorial uh, claims and, you know, potential uh, activities in the South China Sea to you know pre pre prevent a free and open Indo-Pacific. If we don't get that right, um, none of the other stuff we're doing in Congress will ultimately matter um, because we're looking at you know really whose values dictate the rest of the 21st century. Is it the United States and our allies and like-minded nations, or is it China and their aggression and and their host of um, you know I wouldn't call them you know uh, uh, allies, but you know the 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 ones the bad actors. Um, you know if you look at um, China, um, their, you know, cooperation uh, with, with Russia, just recently doing naval drills in the Pacific, um, and then North Korea, and, you know, it's just the world's a very dangerous place, it spans multiple continents, um, and if we don't get those investments right to make sure that the United States, along with our partners and allies, are able to push back um, against the bad actors, you know, then all of the other things that we're, we're doing will ultimately, um, you know, not be as significant um, because of the impact that it'll have, you know, kind of on the world order. Um, there's always a challenge within Congress because, you know, ultimately there are limited resources um, and there's always a push and pull um, between, you know, how much goes to defense out of discretionary spending, how much goes to, you know, other programs, um, which are also worthy investments. And so that's kind of the, the push and pull every year of, of getting the appropriations bills, the budget passed. Um, and, you know, we're in a situation now, um, you know, where one of the main threads um, under the current Republican controlled Congress is about, you know, the, the debt ceiling um, and, you know, how much are we going to spend? Um, it's really concerning and quite shocking when Republicans are the ones showing up saying, you know, we're going to have to make cuts and those cuts are going to include defense, um, especially in a time when I think we need to be spending more on defense um, because of the current world situation. Yeah, I, I'd love to pull on one of those strands you mentioned um, even more when it comes to defense spending, um, because it seems like what used to be and still is uh, a, a broadly bipartisan area of agreement, although, of course, you know, there's this disagreement on priorities and how to structure defense spending. Um, it seems like from both the left and the right, there are emerging 
counterpoints to building up our ability to project influence abroad. You mentioned the importance of making sure that our values as the United States win out over bad actors like Russia, like China. Um, and yet you have certainly emerging on the Republican side, um, uh, an, an isolationist attitude that you know suggests that maybe it's not our business to pay for foreign security or foreign wars. You see that you know with some of the more far right members of Congress objecting to additional aid to Ukraine. Um, and then there's also the contribution from some elements of the left that suggests that um, building up our ability to project power abroad for our values um, and, and spread democracy and liberalism, or at least defend it, too often historically has been um, a wolf of imperialism in sheep's clothing. Um, and I was just wondering if you had any um, or responses or reflections or encounters with either of those two um, uh, pieces of pushback against um, what is what was at least a broadly bipartisan agreement that we had to build up our security capabilities. Well, first of all, I would say that that still is a very broad bipartisan um, you know, foundation. It's the key role of Congress really to provide for our national defense. Um, and, you know, I think that we're in a situation, especially in the way that information is disseminated or transmitted that, you know, individual members of Congress have a very large um, microphone. Um, and, you know, it's really kind of boring, especially for the media to report on, you know, Congress is just doing their job, like how many people sit and watch Armed Services Committee hearings from beginning to end um, with the multiple subcommittees and then appropriations. And, you know, like that stuff is all very routine. And although very important, it's not like headline worthy. Um, it's when you have that, you know, kind of often left or right field voice of somebody who's kind of questioning the status quo that gets a lot of attention. So I would first just caution to say that there are certainly people who are saying those kinds of things on the left and the right. Um, but they are really, really in the minority as far as, you know, members of the House and the Senate. And um, I think that there's really unquestioned um, support for, you know, continuing to provide the resources to Ukraine that they need to, you know, uh, push back against the Russian invasion. And then ultimately, you know, I think there's going to be a huge worldwide effort when this conflict ends that we are going to need to help Ukraine you know, rebuild. Um, and I think that those are in line with our American values and in line with, you know, the majority, uh, the vast majority, not just a slim majority, but the vast majority in Congress. Um, what I would say also complicates it, especially in the Republican controlled House, where the majority is only, I think, four or five right now, is that it only takes a few really loud, vocal, you know, members who disagree um, to stop something. And so that's going to be a very complicated um, situation to you know, uh, ensure at times that, that that there's, it really has to be more bipartisan agreement. It has to be something that comes to the table that Democrats and Republicans both support by bar, bar, broad margins. And then you'll just have the, I call them sort of fringe or outliers in left and right field um, who may not agree. Um, so we'll just have to see, you know, kind of how those dynamics play out. And Kevin McCarthy has also said, he's not gonna pass an omnibus. <laughs> Um, which, you know, for folks who, you know, don't track this as closely, there's like 14 appropriations bills and an omnibus would be like, you pass them all together. Or you do a minibus where you take three or four of them and pass them as a group. And kind of why that works is there's some people who may be very enthusiastic about higher defense spending and some people who are rather hesitant on that. But if you pass, say, health and human services at the same time as you pass um, defense spending combined, you get some people who, you know, are very 
for example, focused on specific things in the other bill, um, you know, sort of more, um, you know, health related or, you know, quality of life or affordable housing or the environment or, you know, just things that might be included in another bill. So, you know, people who may be hesitant on one or the other can come together and say like, well, if we're going to do this on defense, we can agree that we're going to do this on the other items. And it allows sort of more consensus on getting these bills passed. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, when I first came to Congress, it was in the middle of the longest government shutdown. It was a partial government shutdown um, and they hadn't passed the Homeland Appropriations Bill. Um, and that was in the midst of an argument over funding for the border. And it was to me really rather ironic because here we are talking about not providing adequate funding for a border wall and for border security, yet I was going out to visit people around the district who worked in the Department of Homeland Security, TSA at the airport, Customs and Border Patrol, the Coast Guard, um, USCIS, like all of these agencies that essentially are the ones who secure the border, um, ensure security, um, are the ones who are literally going to work without getting paid. So this can lead to some very messy fights. Um, so we'll just have to watch how that plays out in this Congress. And, and that's really interesting. Uh, I kind of want to build on uh, what Sam was talking about, uh, speaking about the complexities associated with uh, military action and justifying military action as well, specifically in regards to uh, Afghanistan, because you were in Congress when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan for good. And as a service member and a rep from like a heavy heavily uh, pro-military district, like what was your perspective on this? And furthermore, uh, how do you differentiate between when we are uh, projecting our values using uh, military action versus uh, getting lost in uh, forever wars? So I had the opportunity to travel to Afghanistan while I was in Congress with the bipartisan delegation, including the, the speaker and the chair and ranking member of the Armed Services Committee. Um, and at that point, I think we had roughly 8,000 troops um, left in Afghanistan. Um, we had been you know, gradually sort of downsizing our presence there. I believe strongly that we needed to keep a relatively small or modest um, presence on the ground in Afghanistan as an ability to um, you know, support the stability of the you know, previous uh, government. Um, you know, I don't think we have time in this podcast to get into all the machinations of how the withdrawal happened, but you know, it was certainly within the Trump administration, President Trump made this order. It was kind of like written on the back of a napkin. Um, you know, this whole episode with Johnny McAdee and going to, um, you know, create these orders um, really without the advice and coordination of his top military advisors. Um, and then I think President Biden believed strongly in, you know, ending what had been a 20 year roughly presence in Afghanistan. And, you know, the way that it was executed, um, you know, didn't notify, you know, our coalition partners and, you know, was really a rushed withdrawal. I would say for the military themselves, the airlift and the things that happened on a very rapid basis, it was the largest, you know, airlift evacuation in, in history. Um, they executed that mission, what's told to do it, of just the timing and the coordination that, that led to the order, um, you know, I think um, it could have been better um, executed. Um, and so, you know, I, personally, as you know, one would say like a navalist, uh, you know, someone who believes um, in the importance of our Navy and our naval presence and sort of our most, you know, 
pressing security concern today being with regards to China. I don't see that as a, a parallel scenario where there is, you know, long-term, um, you know, ground forces. I mean, this the Navy and the Air Force essentially where we need to be making those investments and having that presence. Um, and we can't forget that that presence is really there every day. It's not only in the time of conflict, it's actually just as important. And there was a change made in the defense bill last year to change the Title X responsibility of the Navy, like to explicitly say, um, that the Navy is required, you know, by law to have that peacetime presence, um, which, you know, the Navy has, but struggles with the number of ships that we have today to, to be present, you know, in the numbers and, and all the places in the world where I think that's important. Um, so, you know, I think that the, the long uh, presence in both of those places, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, really took our focus and drained our resources for some of the investments that could have been made over the last 20 years in order to ensure you know the force that that ideally we could have had today yeah so um thank you so much for sharing uh the, those insights with us and we got sort of a big picture question for you as someone who has that um a long-term view of both naval development and the course of united states security um and also as um a member of Congress who served under two, what I think is fair to say, rather different uh, presidential administrations. <laughs> um, and so I was just wondering, um, from, from, a, from a big picture, from your perspective, when it comes to uh, defense and security development capabilities and strategy, what grade would you give um, the, the Trump administration and so far the Biden administration, um, both in what they can improve on and what they've done well? Oh, gosh. Um... Well, the Trump administration came in like guns blazing, you know, essentially saying the right things about, you know, we need to build up our fleet, build the Navy, we need this additional capability. Um, and it was unfortunate that with that enthusiasm, their plan didn't come out until around the fall of 2020 with this Battle Force 2045, which was outlining an investment, you know, in the fleet. So, you know, I think there was time wasted, essentially, um, and putting out that plan so that it could then be implemented. Um, and with a new administration, a new evaluation of the national defense strategy, national security strategy, national military strategy, kind of all of those guiding documents and guiding, um, you know, philosophies of the administration, it was sort of like starting over at ground zero, essentially, kind of reevaluating. Um, and, you know, through the course of my time in Congress, we found ourselves, you know, year over year, not seeing a 30-year shipbuilding plan in some years, in some years, like a choose your own adventure plan, essentially where the Navy laid out multiple different scenarios based off of you know what investment Congress was willing to make. But I'll tell you that every single year, Congress wanted to do more than the administration was asking for, um, especially in the Biden administration and especially with regards to shipbuilding. Um, so in last Congress, the first term, first year of that Congress, we added 25 billion to the defense budget the following year. Um, myself and Representative Jared Golden from Maine, who's a former Marine, um, we worked together on an amendment that added $37 billion to the defense budget. And the Senate did 45. You know, we kind of, once the bill goes to conference, House, Senate, um, you know, we did even a little bit more than the House had added. But, you know, propensity those resources towards things in the Pacific, Pacific Deterrence Initiative, um, as well as, you know, investments um, in, in shipbuilding. Um, I've had a chance to look, you know, kind of at the top lines of this year's president's budget proposal, and I can say that Congress will probably um, push and, and try to do more again um, above that. And so, um, I don't know if the grades are supposed to be letter grades or pass fail. Um, 
but that's never a I good question that... to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not going to say fail for either. Um, but you know, a, a C plus B minus, but I wouldn't, you know, really say one administration or the other. I mean, I think they both had their, you know, shortcomings um, in these areas and you can't look at it just in a stovepipe or a vacuum, you know, like you might, um, one might be stronger on developing relationships with allies and partners. One might be stronger on, you know, the the dollar amount we put into it. Um, but if you don't really have, you know, multi-pronged approach across, you know, sort of all branches of government um, to implement these policies, I mean, defense doesn't act on its on its own in the big sense of, you know, how effective it would be, you know, if you had the largest military in the world, but no allies or vice versa, um, you know, everybody wanted to be on your team, but none of you had any ships or aircraft, you know, so I think that there were things that the Trump administration did um, potentially to sort of alienate some of our, our potential allies. Um, but, you know, in Europe, for example, um, not that it was wrong. I mean, I do think that the Europeans need to step up um, and, you know, provide more to the mutual defense of the NATO alliance. Um, but the way the administration went about it, I don't know, was received as well, um, you know, by our European allies and partners as, um, you know, now, if anything, Putin has been successful in bringing NATO closer together <laughs> and making it more unified um, than before and seeing, you know, quite a few countries in Europe uh, make that commitment to invest more um, in the mutual defense uh, of the NATO alliance. So. Thank you for answering that complicated question. Uh, we're kind of at the end of our question list. So that that's a wrap for the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Representative uh, Lyria. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I really enjoyed the opportunity to chat with you and to spend time uh, on the campus and in our seminars at Georgetown. And uh, I'm not sure when the podcast will air, but our, our final seminar session is going to be on April 17th. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And, you know, please join us in person if you have any follow on questions. It will be focused on bipartisanship in Congress as well uh, as, you know, a specific focus um, on defense um, and U.S. presence in the South China Sea. So. You heard of Hoyas. Join, did, us, join, yeah. in the Baker, join us in the Baker living room for that. It should be a great conversation. Thank you so much. We, that was perfect. We didn't even have to ask you to plug your own uh, discussion group. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.